Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, along with me on this journey back to the 80s is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Bill, I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her, marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet, buried alive, buried alive. Khan! Khan! Yeah! (laughs) I didn't want to shout too loud. Oh, that was beautiful. Thank you for that, Bill Band. How are you this evening? I'm doing well, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great because of your participation. You get the participation award tonight. Oh, thank you. Uh, Hey, man, you know what's great about, or I should say what was great about transcribing that quote was that I was actually playing, you know, the movie in the background while I was trying to type at the same time. And it was all too easy because Ricardo Montalban, who's wonderful, was saying it with such like he's so deliberate and melodramatic and his oh, yes. deliver- like I had no problem keeping up with him as I was typing. So it was like, oh yeah, this is oh this is great for once. I can just listen and <laughs> oh, he's so awesome. Good. He's so awesome in this. Man, it's beautiful. So pleasure to be with you here tonight discussing a true science fiction classic. Yes, that's right, listeners. Today we will be discussing the 1982 sci-fi adventure Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, starring William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and Ricardo Montalban. Directed by Nicholas Meyer, this movie is rated PG with a running time of one hour and 53 minutes. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. What's on the box? Take it away, Jason. It is the 23rd century. The Federation starship USS Enterprise is on routine training maneuvers, and Admiral James T. Kirk seems resigned to the fact that this inspection may well be the last space mission of his career. But Khan is back. Aided by his exiled band of genetic supermen, Khan, brilliant renegade of 20th century Earth, has raided Space Station Regula 1, stolen a top-secret device called Project Genesis, wrested control of another Federation starship, and now schemes to set a most deadly trap for his old enemy Kirk. With the threat of a universal Armageddon! Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Yes, so that was what's on the box. All right, let's move on to our earliest memories of the film. Jason, as always, start us off. Absolutely, thank you. Maybe I saw this in the theater. I'm not quite sure. I think I did. If I did not see it in the theater, I know I saw it shortly thereafter, probably on on VHS, but I saw this when I was young. I was only eight or nine years old when it was released in the theater. And this is, uh, I just remember that this was the movie that sold me on the Star Trek franchise. I don't think I was all in on Star Trek until this film. Uh, I'll get into that a little bit more with my initial thoughts. 
other earliest memories. This is what I call the earworms, also known as seti eels, because these particular creatures are the last remaining indigenous creatures of the planet seti alpha five. Well, I just called them the earworms and they freaked me the F out as a kid. I mean, I'll just tell you the truth right now. There's no need for that worm business. You can keep your worms. That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, Oh, also, Kirk had a girlfriend at some point. And I'm like, what? Wait, I understand that he is a ladies man and has a preference for the the green skinned ladies. But look, Kirk has a kid in this movie. I remember that. I'm like, wait a minute. He's got a he's got a boy who's actually a young man. So uh, I remember being uh, somewhat surprised by that plot point. How could Khan not be a memory from this film? I mean, it's one of the greatest villains, especially in science fiction films. I can't pronounce his full name. I'm just going to keep calling him Khan. His performance is, yeah, I'm going to say it right now, iconic. And that villain is iconic. And gosh, you know, I recall the idea of Project Genesis in this film being pretty inspirational. I'm not sure it's clear as to how the project actually works in this film. But regardless, as a kid, I was like, well, this is a cool concept. The idea that this sort of scientific invention could create life from lifelessness, as they say in the movie. So I love that idea. I remember that. And then last but not least, earliest memory has to be the death of Spock. That was rough. It was rough. I was like, what? No, what? You can't do that. But they did it. And it was impactful. And those are my earliest memories. How about you, Bill Band? Yeah, for um, earliest memories for me, I did write down the SETI eels. That is definitely a big thing for me in that film. I thought that was just crazy. It's like, oh, my God, these things crawl in your ears. The stuff of nightmares. Yes. My earliest memories of this film is... I'm not even sure where I saw this in the order of Star Trek films, because I definitely did not see the first one first. I think I I didn't see Star Trek, the motion picture until after at least the fourth one. So I actually think I might've seen this second, but I saw the third one first and then saw this one. I wasn't that big a Star Trek fan back when I was younger. It wasn't really until next generation started that I really became sure a Star Trek fan and then went back and revisited all this other stuff. But my earliest memory of this film is through man magazine. <laughs> all right. My dad used to be a big fan of man magazine and he would buy the magazines. And it was just great because you would get a synopsis of the film in like five pages and man sure. magazine called this star black. I forgot that, even, that they used to do that. I used to love when they do that. Yeah. So it was called the the wreck of corn. That's what they called this one. <laughs> and what what always stood out to me because there's there's one panel where it's the scene where uh, Khan asks Kirk and he has sixty seconds to give him the the genesis information. Right. Well, the way they spoofed in the magazine is like he's like you have sixty seconds of the information, and Kirk's like I need more time. I need a minute. And you know, Khan's like, oh, of course, I I'm feeling generous today. I'll give you the minute. 
And I always found that funny because as a kid, I was like, it's the same time. Right. I can't believe it. it's the same time. But yeah, I used to love Man Magazine because you, yeah, you would. They did a really good job of condensing a movie into five. Like you kind of knew what the plot was going in. Yeah. And parroting it. Yeah. And it was a big issue too, because I also did that same issue also did ET on that one too. So that's why I kind of, I remember that, but I always remember that one panel from Star Trek too, because every time I make a joke, like teaching my kids a minute and 60 seconds, I'm always like, yeah, it's the same thing. And it just makes me think of man magazine and that which and hence makes me. I love it. I, Alfred E. Newman. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Love it. That's one of the, as a kid, always, I, I always look for that on the rack at the grocery store. Oh, you know, yeah. When you're standing in line as a kid, that was the thing you grabbed first mm-hmm. and just flipped through it. Yeah, that was a magazine it. I would yeah read from cover to cover. Love love that. Sure. And they would always do the Star Trek films, you know, of course, Star Wars, um, E.T., all, all of those. So I, I loved it because you would literally get it. Like if I hadn't seen the movie, like it usually came out like three or four months after the film came out. It would just wrap it up right there for you in a, in a funny, humorous way. Love that piece of nostalgia, man. Love it. But yeah, like you, the Eels was the big thing. Um, the death of Spock, like I said, even though I didn't follow the show, I knew who all the characters were. And unfortunately seeing, I think three first, it was kind of weird kind of going back to see how that happened. Khan was to me, but yes, for me, I didn't watch the show. So I had no idea that Khan was, this was basically a sequel to the series in a sense where they took a character from the series and moved them on. Right. Which I always forget for some reason, I forget about that lore aspect mm-hmm. of it but that's such a cool thing yeah so i had to go back and eventually watch the episode just to see where it all started because khan's character is introduced in a classic episode of the original star trek series entitled space seed is mm-hmm. that correct yes please continue i'm sorry i just wanted to oh, clarify no. that point i just remember really liking this movie and this is the one that really got me into star trek and from there on out, I think I saw just about every movie in the theater from that point, started watching The Next Generation, went back and watched the original series. I'm a fan. I'm not a super fan. Like, there's there's so many out there and good for oh, absolutely. That, that are. Yeah. Um, All respect. Right. The, tre- the Trekkies and the Trekkers that are out there, but I get it. I mean, it's just, it's just great. It's just a, you know, a melting pot of cultures all together with one goal to, you know, seek new life. So, yeah, those are my earliest memories of uh, Star Trek II. Love it, man. Well, I, I have some initial thoughts upon watching this film again today. Speaking of nostalgia, now, my dad and I actually did watch some of the classic episodes of Star Trek because, you know, from 1966 and on, uh, because my dad was a fan of the original series and especially, how can you not be a fan of Captain James Tiberius Kirk? He loved the adventure and the sci-fi aspect, so he got me into it a little bit, but it, I wasn't grabbed by it. I did enjoy aspects of it. And again, how much am I really digesting and absorbing as a kid at that age? You know, again, probably between the ages of six and eight around that time, I'm just watching the pretty colors. You know what I mean? We watched a few episodes of that together, and then I believe I did see Star Trek, uh, the motion picture first. And I recall it, in my humble opinion, being not so hot. It wasn't terrible, but I only remember that the dude from Seventh Heaven was in it. A bald lady got vaporized, and it was generally a bore. But as a result, I was out. Like, I was kind of out. You know, I had checked out during that film. I was kind of, I was like, eh, it's Star Trek. It's okay. All right. So 
funny enough, then coming into the sequel, you know, I was like, well, I don't even remember where we had left off with the first film. And I simply don't care. Gosh, I haven't revisited that first movie in years. Again, not a terrible film. It just didn't hold my attention, Not especially not as a younger man. I honestly was a Star Wars kid. That's what got me first. Star Wars got to me first, and it took hold, and it's still embedded in me. You know, I will continually give Star Wars credit for getting to me to this place where I am creatively. This that was the inspiration. So it was kind of the the, the classic Star Trek versus Star Wars thing uh, for me growing up. And it was so when you talk about Star Trek versus Star Wars, you have science fiction adventure versus fantasy science fiction adventure, and as though although Star Wars was and always will be my first love, Star Trek was uh, more of a slow burn for me. It wasn't a quick fix. It was more of an investment. And so that's a bit of a roller coaster at times. But then I found just like yourself, then once getting into Next Generation, the series, et cetera, it was well worth the ride. And I consider myself a fan. Do you have any uh, initial thoughts? I've got a few more to get into, but I just was going to uh, pass it to you for a moment. Uh, yeah, I know a lot of people are not a big fan of the, of the first one, but I think because I saw it so late in the game and by then knew that no one liked it, mm-hmm. I appreciate it. I do. Sure. It's a slow burn and it's really more of just these gorgeous shots of the Enterprise and docking and coming out and all that kind of stuff. It, it is very different. There's an appreciation I do have for it. Oh, no doubt. And yeah. I think the, when we're talking about science fiction versus fantasy, right? Yeah. Which we all know now as fellow nerds that so many people will mistakenly clump Star Trek and Star Wars into the same category or genre. But that's okay. You know, we understand that. We all kind of get it now. The science fiction versus the fantasy. But as a, as a kid, as a young kid, the fantasy is most likely going to grab you more than the science fiction. Yeah. The hero's journey that we go on with Luke Skywalker versus a more thinking man's type of story with uh, Star Trek, in my opinion. Even though you do have a bit of a swashbuckling hero in James T. Kirk, the actual serial aspect of it or the adventure of the week, if you will, with the series where it's born from was a little bit more intellectual. That's all, I think. Uh, which is just a little bit not as appealing you know, as a kid. I think it's pretty straightforward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but as just like you, this movie sold me on Star Trek. After I saw this, I was like, I'm on the train. Let's go. I also, another initial thought I was looking at, I love the poster for this. Uh, oh, yeah. And the tagline at the top that says, at the end of the universe lies the beginning of vengeance. That's a cool tagline. Yeah. That's how you do that. Man, right from the get, the opening credits, let the music do the talking. Yes. James Horner, knocking it out of the park. Wonderful theme. Does his own take on it. This is not the Jerry Goldsmith music. This is not even, we're not opening with the the classic theme. This is James Horner taking over. And it rocks. I can't even, I tell you, man, this film encapsulates everything about Star Trek, I mean, the familiar sights and sounds, you get the hum of the ship, the USS Enterprise. By the way, the hum of the Enterprise, just when you hear it moving through the stars, through space, I need to set that as my white noise, like machine to fall asleep to. I just love the hum of the ship. 
we get the sweeping shots across the ship's main disc-shaped hull, the, across the, the bridge, the famous NCC-1701 registry number, the floodlights on the ship highlighting different aspects of the ship, the two engine nacelles and the cylindrical secondary hull extending from the bottom. Just like right from the, yeah, you know, the I love iconic shots of the ship. They do it all the time and I can't get enough. Those yeah. slow sweeping shots of the enterprise itself makes you fall in love. <laughs> That's starship. Yeah. Even, I even love when it's pulling away and it's got like the blinking underlight. Just like yep. an airplane would. I'm just like, Good oh, call. I, I just love that. Good call, Bill. Couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's no need for it, but I'd love it. There's no need for it in space, but I'd love it. I think there's a relatability to it. It's almost as if you're watching, you know, when you would uh, be a kid at the airport and you're looking out the window and you're watching a huge Boeing jet on the tarmac, right? And it has the blinking lights, especially at night. Yeah and a plane is pulling up to the gate or not, there's that related, there's a tangibility to that. There's a relatability to that. So when you see the USS enterprise, it's like, that's the future of travel in space. It's space travel. So uh, it's great stuff. I love a lot of the, the, the themes that we're dealing with in this. It is chock. This film is chock full of themes, the power of creation, dealing with age, dealing with, with death, facing death, regret, vengeance, rebirth, resurrection, and especially friendship. Can't get enough of Maltvon's unique delivery as an actor. And he's in damn good shape in this movie. That's another <laughs> initial oh, yeah. I'll talk about that a little bit later as well. This is what I'll cap it off with. Literally, this movie has everything you want from a Star Trek motion picture, actually, except of course, Klingons and maybe Tribbles, but you got the crew. You got Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Uhura, Chekhov, Sulu, Scotty, and a sexy Savick, that being Kirstie Alley. You got the Enterprise, the communicators beaming from transporter rooms, phasers, and proton torpedoes running through corridors. That's a thing that I love. You got to see crew members just running through corridors of the Enterprise. You got all the sliding doors that you got the Vulcan nerve pinch and a mind meld. Space dogfights, literary quotes, philosophical discussion with a sense of humor, tactics, strategy, and scientific exploration. This movie has everything you want in a Star Trek movie. But above all, it has the ultimate overacting duel between two heavyweights, William Shatner and Ricardo Montalban. Can't get enough. They both knock it out of the park. And that's what I love about this movie, though, because your main villain is not Klingons that they were able to develop a story that did not involve Klingons, you know, because right. you think you think of the Superman movies, always got to have Lex Luthor in it, or the better Batman ones have have Joker in it, right? Whereas with this, the character they pulled from an episode, it's just a good idea. Yeah, it's, it's just it's a amazing, really, really good idea. It has depth. It has, there's a lot. Of different quality. The story is just intriguing from a character standpoint because the stakes are so high and the history is rich between these characters once you understand the history. And it's funny, yeah, the Klingons only, you don't actually see them in person. They only make a brief appearance in the actual uh, training simulation at the very opening of the film in The Birds of Prey. But that's it. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's fa- and the fact that you have one of the greatest villains and one of our greatest heroes in science fiction film 
and they're never in the same room together. No, not once. I didn't realize that, you know, research like, oh yeah, they are never yeah. together. I, me, me neither. I never, I just didn't think about it. I had no idea this was based on an episode of the, the show, right? Because they gave you enough information in the movie that you did not need to see it in order to understand what was going on. It was really brief explanations. You know, it was Chekhov and, and Khan at one point, And then that's Chuck what explains I explains yeah. a little bit later. I'll get on. that into my favorite scenes. Cause that's yeah. what I'm, yeah. It's okay. a huge, huge exposition dump and it totally works for me. Oh yeah. Totally works. And that's where you get all the background that you need. Mm-hmm. We all understand this. Now the importance of a villain, it's something that all too often now in cinema, you know, uh, especially blockbuster films seem to suffer from that problem. They've got a villain problem. And you look at like Marvel found a solution with Thanos, uh, which I thought in my humble opinion was great. Uh, Mm -hmm. Die Hard is a perfect example. We all love Hans Kruger, Alan Rickman's portrayal, iconic. Yes. And, you know, obviously Darth Vader and Star Wars. And now you have... Star Trek, you have Montalban and this character that just has, he's intimidating, he has the amazing intellect, uh, the strength and motivation. He has purpose and he's driven and you understand why. And he makes you believe that he believes he's doing exactly what he thinks is right. Mm -hmm. And he's a formidable foe. You know, he's superior as they say in the film he's superior intellect right and so it's like well okay now you're up against someone who by all measure is better than you how are you going to beat that person how are you going to overcome that villain the setup is is fantastic all right so let's uh move on to favorite scenes what are some of our favorite scenes from star trek 2 the wrath of Khan. you go first man start us off bill bam uh, I'm going to jump way, way, way <laughs> towards the end. I loved the space battle in the nebula. Battle of the Mutara Nebula. Yes. That also was awesome. on my list. It has to be, man. Good choice. Um, so we're basically in the third act of the film, but they're finally squaring off between Khan and Kirk. Both of their ships are heavily damaged, so they're not 100%. The Enterprise is in worse shape than the ship that, uh, Khan has acquired the USS Reliant. Yes, the Reliant. So Kirk wants to even the stakes by taking it into this nebula. So with the nebula, the, the communications are out. So they really so they're they're both flying blind at this point. It's really like, see, I love submarine movies. So this is what it reminds me of. It's like two subs in the ocean. They have no idea where each other is, and they could literally be within feet of each other. And, and it was done know it. very specifically. The whole nautical aspect was a conscious choice by the director's writer, producer. And it's awesome. Totally agree. Totally agree with you. So they're in this nebula together and they're just looking at their view screens. Let's just fly around. Hope we see the other ship. And when we do, just fire. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of going back and forth. And at the one point, Spock realizes that Khan, even though he is intellectually superior, works on a 2D level. And they kind of hint at that early on because when they go down to Alpha and they see like the, you know, the checker set and the chess set. So he's always playing games. He's always matches. 
It's all two-dimensional two games. Great point. I didn't make that connection, but that is a very smart comment. I like that. Thank mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So how Kirk realizes they can defeat them is that they do the third plane, go up or down, up or down. And right. basically, he just has the Enterprise just drop down and just let Khan just float right over him, guesstimate when he's over, and then just comes up and attacks him from behind and just takes him out. So I just thought that was really cool how they figured that out. And then, of course, at that point, because Khan has the Genesis machine, which is the whole purpose of the Genesis machine is to create new life. But because it's almost like a nuclear blast, he's going to set it off and the Enterprise needs to get out of there as quick as possible. And then even then it's, can the Enterprise get away with no warp engines? Right. They might as well just get out there and push. That's how bad the Enterprise is yeah, at this yeah. point. But it's a great scene. I just I just love it. The back and forth, because you really were like, oh my God, what's going to happen? Both these ships are just crippled at this point. They are just flying blind. It's tension-filled, a lot of fun. One of the better space battles I've probably seen put on film. And it, it just works. I thought it was just great. I appreciate your enthusiasm for that scene. And I would like to say that I share it wholeheartedly, my friend, because it is awesome from a storytelling aspect, from a filmmaking aspect. I'm just going to jump right off on the last point that you made, because it's one of the better like space dogfights you see in science fiction. I am old school. I appreciate watching the tactical uh, slash uh, strategic maneuvering because that just makes it more interesting to me. Whereas now what you get is in modern day science fiction, fantasy films is the wonderful spectacle and grand scale of space battles, but they don't draw me in. In this is the clear display, like of a nautical, like you said, like two sub commanders, the best of the best going against one another. And I appreciate kind of the methodical approach. It's more of a deliberate, there's a, the speed of it is a little bit slower, but you get to, you can get invested in the fight. You can actually watch it develop. And I love that aspect of it. The way that this scene begins with the fact that Khan wants to chase Kirk into the nebula, but is warned by his first in command. I think is it Joachim? Is that what it is? Is that how you say his name? Uh, says, no, you can't go in there because we will lose our shield capability and tactical display. And that's the same thing that Kirk is aware of. But Kirk lures Khan in. He's goading him saying, I'm laughing at the superior intellect, you know, it says, which he's banking on the fact that Khan, because of his. So single-minded at this point. Oh, yeah. He's just foaming at the mouth. He's basically. He's out for vengeance, and his singular purpose and goal here is to get Kirk. So he goads him into following him into the nebula. And I love the fact that he, there's a great moment where Spock is saying to Savick, uh, played by Kirstie Alley, as I've mentioned, because she says, wait, we're going to lose our... She also says from the you know Enterprise point of view, we're also going to learn lose, excuse me, lose our tactical display and we'll have no shields. And Spock says sauce for the goose and she looks at him and then he explains the saying saying well even the odds and i was like wait what's that sauce for the goose 
because I and then I looked it up and it's sauce for the goose is the sauce for the gander. I always thought that saying what you know what's good good for the goose is good for the gander. But yeah, it's, that's the same. it's a it's a British version of it. I think it may be oh, okay. red where it comes from, but there's the version of it which is sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander, meaning what's good for us is good for that. You're again, it's an even playing field. Mm-hmm. But I always was wondering what the, what is Spock talking about? Sauce for the goose. I don't, what is he talking about? The visuals during this battle. The colors when they're in the nebula are beautiful. They're like floating through these clouds. You have like yes. a lightning storm happening at the same time, like this electrical interference, which is causing the effect, you know, the electrical problems with the ships. You can't really see uh, what's going on. And you're right. They're just floating around, hoping they're positioning correctly based on the last known location of the enemy. And you said the 3D aspect. Now you mentioned. You know, because uh, Spock says, although he is superior intellectually, he lacks experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great point that you see another. Sometimes it's another lesson we learn is that no matter how smart you may be or book smart you may be, nothing makes up for actual experience, practical experience. And that's what Kirk has. Yeah. And so he uses that to his advantage by moving three dimensionally through the space. Love the sound design. Yes, in this this battle is great. Sometimes it just goes quiet because they're just waiting. Oh yeah, it just like you had mentioned in a submarine, the silence becomes an essential character in that scene. Wonderful, love it. So yeah, I also have that on my uh, favorite scenes list. Oh, by the way, the music too. If I I think I mentioned that, but yeah, the Battle of the Matara Nebula is on the soundtrack, and I recommend that. I love the music of this film. All right. So what do you got for your, uh, so, I so I'm, I'm going to go. Seasons. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to go back to uh, near the beginning. I kind of touched on this is um, I'm going to go with Khan's introduction. There's a great speaking of music. There's a great music cue here. A little setup is that this is almost like a side story in the beginning of the movie. Pavel Chekhov. And excuse me, who's the other, is it? Uh, Terrell. Thank you, Terrell. There you are aboard the USS Reliant, and their mission is to find a suitable planet for the Genesis Project, meaning a planet that is devoid, completely devoid of life, so that the Genesis device can be put onto the planet and create life and basically create an entire new planet. On this mission, they think they find a potential planet, SETI Alpha 6. Chekhov and Terrell go down to the planet thinking it's completely barren and they come across a cargo carrier. Like, what the hell is this doing here? And they go in and Chekhov quickly realizes that it's from the Botany Bay, this particular cargo carrier, which is a really bad sign as we quickly find out. And they are taken captive by these what seem to be roaming nomads on this planet and they're like cloaked. And they have these masks and they go into the carrier and you have Khan, who is the leader, and he reveals himself and Chekhov recognizes him and is like, oh, my God, it's Khan. You're alive. And Khan says, yes. And so here's the introduction of Khan. Khan makes himself known. We get the exposition dump. He explains how he ended up on SETI Alpha 6, which is not SETI Alpha 6. It's actually SETI Alpha 5, because SETI Alpha 6 had exploded, 
and laid this planet to waste. And they had been marooned there by Kirk years and years and years previously. And Khan uh, managed to survive because of his superior intellect and uh, his fellow exiled supermen, these genetically enhanced crew, uh, also survived. However, many of them had been killed by an indigenous creature known as a seti eel, and one of those killed was his wife. So obviously he harbors some ill will against Captain Kirk for having abandoned him on this planet so many years before. So it's just a cool establishing scene because in one scene, you have Khan revealing himself. He establishes a little bit of the history, how old he is. He's hundreds of years old, his superior intellect, his physical strength. He picks up uh, Chekhov at one point with one hand by like a a conveniently placed handle on the front of Chekhov's suit. I always love that. I'm like, what's that handle for? Yeah, what is its function? Is that maybe like if you were spacewalking, like it's a where you tether tether, yourself or something? It's a great moment where Khan lifts Chekhov off the ground uh, with one hand. Then we have the really, really impactful and incredibly disgusting SETI eels. Khan uses these eels. You know it if you've seen it. These eels reside underneath the sand, which is creepy unto itself. They crawl around on the sand. So you just wouldn't want to step on one of these things, but they procreate and keep their young within their scales. And you have to peel the young out of the scales or the young, the younglings come out of the scales. They crawl into a human being's ear, wrap themselves around the cerebral cortex and render the host, that being a human being, very open to suggestion. It's brutal to watch one of these things go into somebody's ear. And you see Khan place two of these little baby eels into the helmets of Chekhov and the other guy who I can't remember is Terrell. (laughs) I got it. Yes. And you watch these little creatures go into their ears and you're like, oh my God. And you feel the pain and they're screaming in agony. And it's like, oh my God, I can't. And there's blood like coming out of there. It's like, no, don't. But you can't look away. And it's disgusting. It's awful. And it's horrific. And then Khan, of course, has the upper hand and he can ask them any questions that he wants answers to. And his main question being, why are you here? Because he knows that they can lead him back to Kirk. And so it's an awesome scene because you get to see Ricardo Montalban's impressive pecs. Yes. So that's another favorite scene of mine. Yeah, that is a great scene highlighted by the eels, which are just disgusting. It's extremely memorable. By the way, this is a seven and a half minute scene. Is it? It's a long scene. Doesn't feel it. No, that's how great his performance is, though. You can't keep your eyes off of him. But what even makes that great is you see that eel and you're like, all right, it looks kind of, I mean, today's standards, it looks a little fakish. But then when he pulls those little babies off and you're like, oh, yeah, I mean, they look like little leeches. Oh, yeah, they're great. And then the fact that they just throw them in their helmets and you just see it on their face and they're holding their hands down so they can't take their helmets off. And you kind of see them trying to look at it to see where it's going. You're just it gives you the willies. It really does give you the willies. Totally. And supposedly they had a cut part of that just because test audiences couldn't handle. Oh, I'm sure they're just like, that's too much. I get it, too. Even even what they show is still. Ugh. Just, and just the thought of anything crawling into your ear. Yeah. No, stay out of my ear hole. And then the fact that they figure out you're just susceptible to 
suggestion at that point, having these things in there. And then they grow in there to the point where the host dies. Right. And the way that Khan explains it, how painful it is. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it drives the host, being a human in this case, mad. And then you just die. No, thanks. Yeah. That was the other part of the great thing about his performance is that Khan, in a way, it feels as though he's being braggadocious, but you buy it because he is justified in his statements. Like, as in, also, he's just being honest. It is who he is. Because there is a point in there where he says, like, you never came back to check on us. And maybe we wouldn't have been like this if you had come back and known the planet blew up and devastated this one. Because that was the thing I was really thinking about. I was like, how are these people surviving for as long as they have been if the planet blew up so soon after they arrived? It's just crazy. Oh, absolutely. There's, again, the history that's established here is really cool because it's kind of like, which side do you choose here? Because the way he presents the story and how you see it from his perspective, you can see why he's mad. (laughs) He's a little upset with Captain Kirk, who is now, by the way, Admiral Kirk. Yes. Great, another great moment in the scene when he finds out, oh, he's now Admiral. Yes. Admiral. Yes, the way he says it. He says it three times. Admiral. Admiral. Yes. He's justified in being upset, but then Chekhov preside, you know, presents his perspective, which goes back to the original uh show, I believe, right? The the episode. Yeah. Is the fact that Khan tried to take over the Enterprise and kill Kirk. That's why Kirk put him on the planet in the first place. Yeah. So it's like, okay, who's who's the real bad guy here? But mm-hmm. both sides seem to have an argument. Yeah. Cool. It's a cool setup. It's a great setup of our uh for our villain. All right. So moving on, the favorite scene. I'm sure this is one of yours too. Yeah. Uh, so we'll just both comment on it is the death of Spock. That's it. I guess unfortunately doing the research was not a surprise to movie audiences going in. It is an amazing scene. So what happens is it, it basically happens after the nebula battle kirk is one but khan's going to give it one last hurrah before he dies and sets off the genesis machine to blow up and hopefully take out the enterprise in the process right and the enterprise can't get away because they're only running on impulse power which is basically first gear of a starship right trying to just limp out of the way. So Spock realizes the only way they're going to survive is to fix the warp engines. In order to do this, he's got to go into the reactor room, which is full of radiation. But they mentioned this in the beginning. This is great because it goes back to, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the yeah, one. It's total foreshadowing. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's an awesome line. Latent foreshadowing. And it's awesome. So Spock sneaks off, goes down to the to the engine room. This I had to look it up because I was like, what does Spock do exactly? And what he's doing, he's repairing the plasma conduits to the warp drive. But uh, it's in, like you said, it's in, it's, and this is, quote, it's in an extremely irradiated portion of engineering. It's totally contaminated and flooded with radiation. Yeah. So keep going, man. And um, it basically sidesteps Scotty. Knocks out bones, gives him the little nerve pinch, and and then the, do the setup for number three, which is great because he does do it. He does do the mind meld mm-hmm. maneuver, and you forget that. Then you watch three, and you're like, oh yeah, he did do that. Yeah, and it has an integral plays an integral part in the third mm-hmm. film. Sorry, I keep interrupting. No, it's okay. 
I'm just excited, man. I know. Well, it's, you know, it's both our favorite scenes, so we should both interject on this one. So, so he goes in the reactor room, fixes the the chamber. All of a sudden, the Enterprise realizes they have warp drive. They escape, and Kurt's about to congratulate Scotty for job well done. And you just hear Jim, got to come down. Yeah, you don't hear Scotty's voice. You hear uh, McCoy. And then you just see Kirk make the look over at Spock's. You better hurry. Console and sees he's not there. And it's like, oh, shit, what, what just happened? I love that move when he goes down there and he goes down the ladder. It just does the slide. The slide with the boat. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I've always wanted to, I've never done that. I got to do that. That's because <laughs> I got to try that once to see if I can actually pull that off. That, that's your takeaway from the scene. That's yeah. what I love. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, Kirk wants to rush in there right away. And Scotty stops and says, he's already dead. You can't, you can't do anything for him. And then there's just this great moment where Spock's still alive. And like he tries to get up. And you just know he has no clue what's going on. But he stands and he just fixes his uniform such a great moment love that moment start getting the sniffles at that point and i wonder if that moment was an actor's choice or directorial choice Mm -hmm. because it's so in character when he struggles to stand up and despite his condition he still straightens his uniform yeah that's exactly what spock would do like it's just uh yeah, gut-wrenching stuff, man. Yeah, and then he just walks over to Kurt, and then you still, because he literally just bumps into the glass. Like, he still has no idea where he's He can at. barely see. The radiation has completely infected him. Yeah, I mean. And then they just have that wonderful conversation together where Spock just tells him he will always be his friend. And it's one of those things, like, the first time I saw it, because I wasn't that much in the Star Trek lore, I was just like, oh, okay, you lost Spock. But then once I got more into Star Trek and then I would watch this film, even though you know what happens further on, it does get to you. It's really an emotional, impactful scene. I mean, this is a beloved character. Everybody knows who Spock is. Is one of a kind. And like I said, most people going into this movie knew that he was going to die. It's amazing. It's just a great scene. It's powerful. It's moving. It's up. Punch to the gut. I can't tell you how many times I've replayed this scene. And it may sound strange, but it makes me feel. And I appreciate it on, on again, every aspect of the storytelling filmmaking, but the, the friendship aspect, especially. It's so sorrowful and profoundly sad at the end. And yeah, I have a lot of comments on this, but I couldn't agree with you more. This is definitely my favorite scene in this film. Maybe the first thing I think of, actually, when someone mentions the movie. You set it up really well why Spock has to go down there. I mean, he's he's saving the many and he's sacrificing himself for the greater good. So bumps into the glass because he's separated by the the glass the it's like a plastic glass like divider and he can barely see Kirk on the other side but Kirk can see him clearly and first thing he says is out of danger yeah. you know and and Kirk's like yeah and Kirk doesn't even know what to say and the fact is you learn later that Kirk hasn't truly faced death this is the first time he's actually facing death but it's not his own this time it's it's really personal and you understand the depth of his friendship and his relationship to Spock. All of it 
hits you like a ton of bricks in this moment. So when you said the line, when Spock says, I have been and always shall be your friend. Like I'm starting to get emotional right now, man, because Kirk then says no. And that's it. He just says no. And it's such a profound moment. We've seen in so many death scenes in films when someone is is passing or dying and the, the loved one, the significant other, the friend, the family member screams no, yells it out. Mm-hmm. This is a different take on it. And it's so profound to me. And I love Shatner's performance in this moment because it is absolutely gut-wrenching because he's in this moment, he's losing his best friend and he just, he doesn't know how to accept that or digest it. So when Spock is sliding down as he's dying and he just can't stand anymore, he's literally sliding down the side of it. And Kirk says no. And he slides down the other side of the glass. My other favorite moment here is, is the very, very final shot because the camera pulls out. You see it's so well composed. I love the composition of the frame here because you have both Kirk and Spock on either side of the glass and they're both mirroring each other. They're both slumped on the floor, mirroring each other. One is dead. One is still alive and feels like he probably should be dead. And the camera pulls away and the music is perfection. I mean, it's just, I only wish that shot lasted about three seconds longer. I feel like the transition is almost too quick because I wish the camera just held on that moment because that the framing of that shot and it gets is just so quiet and it gets me every time, man. Uh, on a lighter note, uh, I, <laughs> one of my my old friends from college, Brian Sears. If you're out there listening, you'll appreciate this. Brian and I used to reenact the scene all the time. We would <laughs> we would quote it and we just. <laughs> would do the hand up against the glass and he would do the, the Spock like, Oh man, just, and we would have fun with it. Cause it's just such a profoundly moving moment. I literally do almost break down every time I don't, I'm not full on tears, but my eyes get watery every time I see the scene. And then I, I'm going to kind of break the rules here and slip into the, the following scene after this, which is the funeral of Spock, uh, the memorial, and then jettisoning his body out of in space. But you have, Kirk and his speech, his eulogy and saying uh, of all the souls I've encountered, his was the most human and his voice shakes. Yeah. And you have the bagpipes and then it goes, it transitions into amazing grace. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just, forget it. Forget it. I'm done. I'm done. I'm an emotional mess. Right. It's beautiful. It's up there for one of my favorite or I feel best death scenes. Yes, because of the impact it has overall on, on the story, and because this this uh, friendship, this particular relationship between Kurt and Spock goes back, obviously all the way to the beginning of the the show, the series, into the movies, and then beyond. So, yeah, it's very it's very impactful. And I'd take it to back. One last comment on this scene is the fact that you you really go from one extreme to the other in such a quick moment. Because it goes from the fact that he saves the day. We understand that he's risking his life in the moment, but they get away. Like Kirk wins. He beat Khan, the ultimate villain up to this point. He beat him. 
They all get away. They survive only for him to get the news that his best friend is dying as a result of the victory. So it goes, it's such a huge emotional swing. It makes that moment even more impactful when Spock dies. Um, Do you have anything else for favorite scenes or moments? I'm going to call it quits there. All right. So uh, let's move on to our Swiss cheese and complaint department. And we call it Swiss cheese because. Although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes. And if it is not a hole, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. So, Jason, do you have anything for Swiss cheese or the complaint department? I have a few complaints. And I, I don't know if this is a hole or a complaint, but I'll just start with this. In the opening <laughs> sequence of the film, we open with a simulation. It's a training simulation with the brand new cadets that are supposed to take over the USS Enterprise. And we are introduced to Lieutenant Savick, played by Kirstie Alley. She is a Vulcan and she is donning the chair, the captain's chair, uh, during this training simulation. And in the simulation, known as the Kobayashi Maru, they are supposed to be attending to a distress signal coming from a ship within the neutral zone. And they have to. she has to make a choice. Do they go into the neutral zone or not? Because if a starship, if a military ship goes into the neutral zone, that is a major infraction. That's a no-no and could potentially start a war. So is it worth the risk in order to save this dying ship? So when she realizes that the ship they have to rescue is in the neutral zone, that she, as a vote, she says, damn. And I, that caught me off guard, this viewing, Bill. I was mm-hmm. like, would a Vulcan say damn? Like she's immediately frustrated. I know this is kind of nitpicky now that I'm saying it out loud. But I was like, oh, that's not very Vulcan. Like she almost expresses emotion in that moment. That was one of the things, too, that almost didn't make sense. But then you have to do the research. And you find out that she is part Vulcan, part Romulan. So the scene where she cries at the end because the Vulcan wouldn't cry. I Yeah, that's, that's, it just made me think of that. Yeah, there we go. You don't know that in the movie, though. So that's what kind of kind of throws you off. You have to find out through research that she's not full Vulcan. So right. she would have a little bit of emotion. I mean, just like Spock is half human, half Vulcan, too. Right, right. It's not addressed in the film. So, yeah, if you. What, what you're saying is, is if I had done my research, I wouldn't have pointed this out. Is that what you're saying, Bill? No, no I'm just that's what I'm saying is that at least one of us did the research for this podcast. And it wasn't me. No, 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 no. But I'm just saying if, you, if, you're, <laughs> watching, if you're watching for the very first time. <laughs> yeah. And you're a big fan of the show. And all of a sudden you see a Vulcan on screen and she says, damn, you'd be like, what, what the hell is that? It just doesn't, it, yeah, it sounds out of character for a right. Vulcan. And you would hope at some point it would be addressed that you would find out she was part Romulan, but it never is. So your complaint makes sense. Uh, so I'm just going to go straight into my, my complaints. Uh, I'm going to file a complaint because it's the same scene. I actually love the idea of this, the Kobayashi Maru, the lesson that is to be learned from it because Kirk has a great line at the end saying to to Savick, you know, we can learn, is it? as much from death as we learned from life, mm-hmm. something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing, but I, so I love the entire training simulation 
because that's how the film opens. You don't know that it's a training simulation. Oh, yeah. You think they're on an actual mission. Yes. Then the, the theatrics ensue because they get in trouble when they go to rescue the ship in the neutral zone. All of a sudden, some Klingon birds of prey show up and they start firing and everything starts blowing up. We see McCoy get blown. You know, he dies. We see uh, Spock. Actually, his console blows up and is in he like he falls to, you know, over dead. Then we learn that it's in the entire scene was a simulation. I was like, wow, are if it's this is just a simulation. Are all those theatrics really necessary? Because it seems really, really dangerous. Yeah, 50-year-old men throwing themselves. just They're collapsing and really getting into it. So I appreciate their uh, commitment. Yes. They're really committing to the part. And they even comment on it, right? McCoy's lying on the floor and he's like, what do you think about my acting? Uh, And Kirk says something, I'm not a drama critic. (laughs) But uh, So it's kind of funny, but it's like, Come on, for a simulation, you're really going to go through and things are ex- literally exploding. I think that's kind of dangerous for a simulation yeah. because I'm like, well, who's going to reset this whole simulation? I don't mm-hmm. want to be that guy. No. Got to fix all this equipment. It just seems a little over the top for a simulation. If yes, you know what does. I mean. It should just be red flashing lights. You slump over a console. Done. Right. Console. <laughs> this is a lawyer drama. Sci-fi, such a console. So that was that was my uh, first complaint. I guess the test itself, because it's been around for so long, you would think people would talk about the test, figure out a way to. Is there different elements to the test? Because if you know right away, it's like, oh yeah, you're going to go and do this test, and there's supposed to be a ship in the neutral zone, and if you go in there, you're going to be attacked by Klingons, right? Come on, man. I mean, I knew when I went to high school, I got tests from like three years ago that would get handed to, <laughs> down to you. So you'd pass you the test. All the, you got all the answers beforehand. Yeah. But that was the thing. It's like, I would like to know all the different scenarios that were played out beforehand because clearly what, the, the, I mean, we understand that this is a, a, a test of character. It is a no-win scenario. Oh, yeah. You're not supposed to be successful in this. You're only supposed to prove your character. And we understand that if you are, quote unquote, doing the right thing, you would go in to save the crew of this ship because it's you're saving, you're attempting to save lives. So is there another scenario where someone decides not to go into the neutral zone and mm-hmm. allow that ship to die? Or, yeah, do you fail doing that? Yeah. Is that considered a failure or is, you know, or, or do they end up? getting into a fight either way are they forced somehow does the 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 algorithm uh just kind of force the captain to make the decision to go into the neutral zone regardless I, you know who knows i would love to see different people make different decisions in that scenario and we know how kirk took it what three times yeah the t- and then you know figured out how to cheat the system which is really cool we understand you know mm-hmm. which i actually really enjoyed in the jj abrams reboot was that we actually get to see? Oh yeah, we get to see him do it, go through mm-hmm. it, and he actually reprogrammed the scenario so he could win. Very cool stuff there. But um, yeah, so I thought it was a little you know, again theatrics were a little overdone. But you would think since that same simulation has been so, so around so much that new cadets would have uh, gotten word as how to best 
approach it? Um, so for me, I got a, I got a little Swiss cheese. <laughs> Punch some holes, man. Okay, so the Reliant comes, you know, after context over the ship. Um, he has the Reliant talk to regular one, which is being run by um, Carol Marcus. Dr. Carol Marcus? Dr. Carol Marcus and saying, hey, uh, we're on our way there. We need to pick up the Genesis Project and all your information. The Federation wants it. Right. So, of course, she's very upset. She's like, whose orders? This is highly irregular. Yes. Whose orders is this? And, of course, uh, Chekhov, who's you know, got the eel in his ear, says Admiral Kirk wants us. So, of course, she's upset, doesn't want to hand it over. So she directly tries to contact Kirk to find out what is going on. Why are they going to take in the Genesis project from us? So, of course, he reaches out. It's a disjointed telecommunication. He can hear her, but she can't hear him. Of course. So he has no idea what she's talking about. So he's like, I'm going to contact Starfleet, find out what's going on. So he reports Starfleet. Starfleet's like, oh, we don't know what's going on. You need to go out and investigate. Right. But in the meantime, the Reliant is part of this mission that's supposed to be searching for this planet. Why didn't Starfleet reach out to the Reliant first to find out what's going on? Uh, right. Yeah, sure. And then if they couldn't get through to them, then you go back to the Enterprise and say, hey, we reached out to Reliant. They're not communicating with us. We don't know what's going on. We don't know who gave these orders, right. why the Reliant's so, going. Yeah. It, like they skipped a step there. Right. Maybe. So, <sighs> so in a way, it should have put the Enterprise on alert when they contact the Reliant and like, yeah, no one's been able to communicate. We can't communicate with them either. They should have been a little more on edge. I sure. Guess. I, you know, I, I, I see this. You're speaking logically here. It's as if they right. just, you would think. Yes, the Reliant is a USS starship that is working in conjunction with Regular One and the Genesis Project. They're trying to find a plan so that they're part of that. And so if you have Dr. Carol Marcus calling Shat- uh, Shatner, calling Kirk directly right. saying, why do you want to take this away from me, this Genesis device? And then Kirk he has no idea. is like, okay, I have to contact Starfleet. Starfleet then would be like, oh, yeah, we well, we reached out to Reliant. And yeah, they have been not communicating. They are no longer communicating. So there's so clearly a problem, but that there's no mention of that. They don't see, you know, that gets kind of skipped over. Yeah. Instead, they just tell Kirk to take the enterprise to take over the enterprise. Cause he's not even running the ship at this point. No, this is when he actually tests to take command. Cause this, they were on a training mission, right? And it's all trainees. Yeah, that's crazy. Right. So that's too. the other, like, talk about raising stakes. They were working with cadets here mm-hmm. and trainees. So he has to take the helm and say, we have to go to regular one and investigate what could potentially be an issue. But yeah, they should have already been on alert that Reliant had been out of communication. Right. That there's something rotten in Denmark there regarding the Reliant. But yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. So it's a, it's a little bit of a hole. I should have went through the chain of command. Yeah. I think still, regardless, when the Reliant does show up and the communications are down and Kirk doesn't know the intentions of the Reliant, he doesn't know who's on board. 
then he would, yes, he would be a little bit more on guard, but probably still somewhat forgiving because it is a USS starship. They do, you know, and still might assume that, well, their communications are just down. That's all. I was going to bring this up in my complaints was when the Reliant does appear and the Enterprise is right in front of the Reliant. Like they're basically facing off, but Kurt doesn't know who's on, but that that Khan has commandeered mm-hmm. the Reliant. He doesn't know that. I still would have felt like, shouldn't you just raise your shields? Like, isn't that protocol? But that's what Savick calls out. She calls out the regulations. Right, saying yeah. It's standard protocol, basically. You should be raising your shields. Yeah, if you can't communicate. But he's a little bit, Kirk is a bit too trusting in that moment and pays the price. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would have been cool if he acknowledged the fact that he knew, like, oh, no, Chekhov's on that ship. They're okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's nitpicky. No, but I think you're right. I mean, it's just you're you're kind of following the the logical steps here. You're it's almost as if you were putting yourself in Starfleet's shoes. What's protocol here? You go down the list of well, who do you talk to first, and who's yeah? Because you could still write around it and make it work. Mm-hmm. I guess they wanted to save another five minutes of movie screen time. That makes sense. Right. That's kind of what I'm chalking it up to. Yeah, that's why I'm saying they just kind of skipped a step there. Yeah. And only bozos like us would bring it up. <laughs> Thanks for putting me in there with you. But, uh, uh, the bozo, only this bozo. Yeah. <laughs> no, All right, go ahead. What, what do you got for complaints or Swiss cheese? We have poor cadet Preston working in the engineering, this young kid who we're briefly introduced to uh, when Kirk is doing his inspection initially of the ship for this training mission that turns into an actual situation here. Cadet Preston. Uh, he gets he gets messed up. He doesn't. Yes. And Scotty, you know, obviously we know Scotty mm-hmm. and an engineer decides to take Preston's body his riddle, like his broken body. He's still technically alive at this point, but up to the bridge. Yeah, that's because big. Kirk turns around, the elevator opens and it's supposed to be this impactful, like, see what happened. Here's the damage. I'm showing you the damage. It's this kid that you met earlier. Remember this kid? Look at him now. He's all burnt and and beat up. And so, yeah, Scotty literally is carrying the, the body of Cadet Preston in his arms and goes up the elevator all the way to the bridge to show Kirk that this kid has gotten severely injured during the battle. I was like, why would, I don't think you need that. That's not necessary. Just take him right to medical bay. Just yeah. take him to medical. You don't need to make a point here. No. It just felt like it's just not subtle and it's not necessary. So that was an issue I had. Yeah. Or a complaint I'm filing. Just a quick complaint for me. Um, so at the end, Spock dies. They put him in the torpedo tube and right. then blast him out to the planet. And then they show a shot of the tube on the planet. Tube's perfectly intact. No damage in the surrounding area. <laughs> It's like it was a monument that was just put there. I'm like, right. At least show like it skidded across the ground. You know, if you're going to leave yeah, the, some sort of blast marks, like, yeah. yeah. Or uh, uh, if you're going to leave the tube weathering. intact, it's uh, yeah, pristine condition. Yeah. I was just like, <laughs> what? Come on. Yeah. Somebody got, got there and wiped it down real quick, you know, and gave it a shine, you know, gave it a wax. I'm surprised you don't see like two little indigenous people now that have just yeah, grown like, on the this planet. This looks nice. This is, they're like, is this is the monolith. Yep. We've got to clean it. At least show a skid that it skidded into somewhere. 
Just some it's some dust or yeah. Uh, yeah, anything. I know. It it's funny. It is resting there pretty pristine. <laughs> complaint that I that's pretty funny. Uh, another complaint that I had is once uh, we know that Kirk knows something's rotten in Denmark because Carol Marcus had, you know, said, why are you taking Genesis? Well, they end up going to the space station eventually. And that's actually after the initial battle, right? With yes. uh, Khan aboard the Reliant. So they go end up going to space station regular one to see what happened. Cause regular one is no longer communicating at this point. There right. should be a crew aboard regular one, but nobody's communicating. So they send a landing party down to regular one or a boarding party, I should say. And they're, you know, walking around looking for any survivors or any of the scientific crew that's supposed to be aboard the, the space station. And some nice, there's some good creepiness in this moment. McCoy is walking around. And at one point, there's a scare. He looks down. There's a rat. Yeah, you figure a rat from Earth has somehow made it all the way out to that. Maybe if it was some other kind of creature or if you knew they were doing experiments on animals, was it literally a lab rat that got loose? That's that would is be that my what, that would be my only explanation. Is that the but, explanation. <laughs> but my initial thinking was the same as you. It was like, what the hell is a rat doing on a space? Day? But then when you started talking, that that just jumped in my head. Like maybe it's a laboratory rat, but they weren't really doing any kind of lab experiments that would. I don't know. It's a cheap scare. Yeah, is what it, it is. is. Yeah, that doesn't quite fit. Yeah, I wish there was some maybe kind of like little alien. Yeah, oh, totally. Instead. Yeah. Then you would have been like, oh, that must have been something that got out. Right. When Khan and his people were there attacking the mm-hmm. crew or torturing and killing them or whatever, that, that something got loose in the melee. But yeah, no. but yeah, it, it jarred me enough to make me like, yeah, it's just a, it's a weird moment. Space? Yes. Weird. Here's a complaint. Ahura and Sulu completely underused in this film. <laughs> I'm just, just going to say that. I mean, that between the two one, of them, but yeah. they have like five lines between the two that of them. That is unfortunate. Yeah, they just aren't given a whole lot to do in this one. Yeah, kind of disappointed with that. They're just used as filler uh, at moments. I mean, I mean, I, I got it. You got a lot of people you got to work in. But for her, she's them, just working the communications and she's just kind of trying to do her job. Doesn't really move the story for it. That's not no, impactful. It, it, yeah, exactly. Neither of them moves the story in it at really any point in the film. Like I would have liked it better. And I know they do this later on where Sulu gets command. Like I would have loved if Sulu mm-hmm. was in charge of the Reliant at that point with Chekhov. And maybe, right. and maybe you still have Terrell and Chekhov go down to the planet and Sulu's still running the ship. Um, so he doesn't get the eel in him and, and you know, end up dying. But yeah, give him a little more yeah. purpose. But yeah, then he just gets stuck on the on the planet with the rest of the crew and they pick him up at the end or something like that. But that would have been a little bit more than what they used him for. And yeah, I, I don't know how you work. I thought into about the it story yeah. more. I think that's what, what I like about the new, the newer Trek films is all of the characters seem to have more expanded roles. Yeah. It's a really, it's a true ensemble yeah. piece. Yeah. I agree. Uh, going back to that scene on, on regular one, because we have Kirk, and McCoy and Savick are on, you know, they're looking around for any surviving crew, scientific crew members, right? And they are all dead. So that's no bueno. Khan had tortured and killed them all. 
yes. uh, looking for information on the location of the Genesis device because they now are on board the regular one where the Genesis device was it's supposed to, but be, it's yeah. disappeared. It's gone. Mm-hmm. Khan didn't find it. Kirk's and uh, uh, McCoy and so, they haven't found it. Who they do find are Chekhov and Terrell, who are still alive. But are they still have the little uh, SETI eels attached to their uh, cortex there? Uh, and anyway, they're basically in their ears, yeah, in their ears and their cerebral cortex. And they're still under the influence of Khan, basically, or susceptible to, to suggestion. But so they're out of it, but they're still alive. So that's good news. They're alive. Now, we then soon learn, like I said, still under the influence of Khan. And they're supposed to point their phaser weapons at Kirk and kill him because Khan has been listening this entire time. Terrell has a wrist communicator and Khan has been listening and knows that uh, Terrell and Chekhov are now in a position where they can kill Kirk uh, aboard regular one. And well, Terrell and Chekhov start having second thoughts. They start they just can't do it. They can't do it. They start uh, fighting the urge, the power of suggestion. They start fighting it. And Terrell points the phaser at himself and commit, kills himself. And then Chekhov freaks out. And you hear the squealing, which is awful, the squealing of the actual SETI eel yes. inside their heads, you know, and of Chekhov's head. And he squeals and he feels the pain. And he falls over and passes out. And then we see the SETI eel exit yes. Chekhov's ear, oozing blood. It's gross. Yes, it's it freaking disgusting. Here's my complaint, Bill. Getting to the point. How, wait, I, we, it's been established that once the SETI eel attaches itself to the cerebral cortex, it drives the host mad and eventually kills him or her. In this case, now Chekhov falls out, like passes out due to the pain, and we see the ear worm, as I call it, the SETI eel. That's fine. Leave the cavity, leave the ear cavity. So mm-hmm. I'm going, why did it? I thought it was supposed to kill him. Like it just grew until it killed him, but it just kind of leaves at this moment, which was not what we're told it did. Now I looked this up, and according. And thanks to uh, memory-alpha.fandom.com, I look this. It, this was. It's possible that it sensed this. This particular SETI eel sensed the death of its brother, because the, I don't, follow me is that Terrell also had a SETI eel in his head, but he kills himself, thus killing the SETI eel in his head, and that's what happened. Is that the other SETI eel? then freaked out and decided to remove itself from Chekhov. Like as if it had to leave Chekhov in order to mourn the death of its brother, Seti, Seti Eel. So that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I was just like, why would the Seti Eel, this little evil worm, leave Chekhov's ear at this point? Well, what's even weird too is, don't they tell them that they put these things in their ears? And you have a medical doctor, went to the medical doctor, just check them right away. Oh, it's true. They do. Say, they tell them exactly what, even though they're still under the influence, so to yeah. speak, they do tell them that's what happened. But McCoy, they don't really take any action at that point to help them. No. They're just like, you got to wait until we get back to the enterprise, I guess, until we get back to medical bay. 
Yeah. This is my last, my last little, this is a, this is a, nit, this is a very nitpicky complaint. So, you know, you're talking about the regular one and they figure out that the Genesis and David and uh, Carol have beamed into the planet that the regular one's orbiting. So we get to see basically phase two of the Genesis project and they have right. those gorgeous matte paintings. Oh, absolutely. But the first one, I'm like, you can't use a waterfall if you if you could tell it's not moving. You could tell it's a painting. Like the first one looks cool, the ocean and the cave and stuff like that. But then they show the waterfall, and I'm like, yeah, it's waterfall with no running water. It just that didn't right. It didn't look, look good. I, I'm with you. It is nitpicky, but I get it. I totally get it. I love that painting, so that's that's the thing. Like I I kind of have I had a conflict, like an inner conflict with the whole thing because. I still that actually I put it should have put as like an earliest memory because I remember that whole well I did mention that the Genesis project was inspirational right the idea of it and when you see stage 2 in the middle of this moon the whole cool the idea of it is cool like yes. they're in the middle of a planet they're underground there's the section that has been tunneled out by all these workers and then they plant an early version of the stage two version of the Genesis device, which creates this immense cavern of life. And you see the waterfalls and all this green and lush foliage and the plateaus and the valleys. And it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. The matte painting is gorgeous. And you're like, Oh, I want to go there. This looks like I was actually going to say fantasy Island and make another (laughs) reference there. But uh, it looks like a fantasy world, uh, or ideal tropical vacation spot. So it looks really cool, but in from certain angles, very fake. And then yeah. from other angles, gorgeous. Mm-hmm. So it depends on the shot. And there's a lot of them in the sequence. And there's certain angles like I like better than others. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. But the idea the, is really cool. Yeah, because they even have the one shot where they, they mix the matte painting in with them and they're standing on the obvious fake grass. I didn't like that either. It's mm. like, oh, God, that looks bad. Yeah. It's funny because th- I have to say overall, the effects are pretty damn good for a 1982. Oh, yeah. The fi- the film, and it's known, and it was lauded for its special effects, you know, but. I was surprised overall, it wasn't nominated. I, me too. Yeah, that's, that is very surprising to me. Because overall, you could say considering what they had to work with, but I mean, it looked great. Yeah, I would say the only the, the only part. two were the ears because you could tell they obviously fake, right? And then just that one matte painting were the only two. Where I was like, oh, okay, they don't work. But everything else I bought, right? All the space stuff is all really really solid. Mm-hmm. That brings us to our next segment, which is hey, it's that actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films an actor making their big screen debut or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. Hey, it's that actor. Jason, who do you have for, Hey, it's that actor. I'm going with Khan's number one Lieutenant man. Joke him. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's uncredited. Yes. Uncredited in this film. The actor's name is Judson Scott. Good looking dude. Uh, Mm -hmm. And you know, I thought he actually really solid in the movie and he's always kind of pointing out the fact that, he is a committed and to the cause, to Khan's cause, that he's there for to, to support Khan. But at the same time, he understands that Khan is, is consumed with his quest for vengeance. Yes. 
And so he kind of points out a couple of the flaws at times and tries to rein Khan back in. And it's no easy task. So I appreciated Judson Scott as uh, Joe Kim in this movie. Judson Scott also starred, previous to this film, he starred in an extremely short-lived TV series called The Phoenix, which I actually liked as a kid. I think there's only five episodes, according to IMDb. It's weird. He's like some sort of sort of mystical being, and he's got like this cool necklace. Like he has some sort of new super or supernatural powers. And I think they're like he's either from a different planet or whatever. But he has some sort of necklace of power. But I love the theme music, and uh, I think you can find it on YouTube. I got to look it up now again. So he was in a very short-lived show called The Phoenix. He was also a regular on the cult classic sci-fi TV show Mid Eighties V. You remember that one? Oh yeah, God, yeah, I forgot that he was on yeah, that. Yeah, they yes. remade it. Of course, there was the, the whole reboot. Oh, in awful. the recent times, I forget when. When was that whole when they redid it? Because that was hugely popular too. That came out like right after Lost, so that was like two thousand eight. Yeah. I watched it, and I was, I was honestly like, I hope they cancel the show. I don't want to watch this anymore, but because I love V so much, I just kept watching it anyway. Well, the original V in the mid eighties was a phenomenon. Oh yeah. Loved it. So he was a regular on that show. Yeah. He was on it. Uh, and then he would go on to make several TV appearances on other big shows and later uh, appeared uh, on the X-Files as mm-hmm. well. So he had a run main, mainly in uh, television. So yeah. Shout out yeah. to Judson Scott. I think he was on um, Star Trek uh, next generation too. I think he did. Yeah. So yeah. 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 Um, so my hey is that actor you kind of mentioned him the actor's name is ike essiman who oh played- yeah preston yes preston so of course he's the trainee that we find out dies during the initial attack from the reliant his major roles growing up because i remember these films were the escape to witch mountain and the oh, return wow. to witch mountain so he was tony he was one of the kids with the extraordinary powers from outer space and actually appeared in the did a Brief cameo in the remake uh, with uh, Dwayne Johnson. But supposedly, if you look in the history of Star Trek, supposedly Preston is related to Scotty. And that was his nephew. So that might have been why he brought him up to the bridge, even though sure, you would think I would still take him to sickbay. He's my nephew. I want to make sure he gets the best care as possible. And there is a deleted scene. Yep. So that's my, hey, it's that actor. All right. All right, so that takes us to facts and trivia, and we know there's tons and tons. and t- We could do literally five shows on facts and trivia for this movie. Yeah, there could be an entire podcast dedicated to this film yeah. alone. So, I'm, you know, we're just going to pick out two or three quick things that I just found fascinating for the, the film. If you're a Star Trek fan, you know there's tons of other stuff you can find, so we won't go deep, deep into it. So, uh, Jason, what do you got for facts and trivia? Um, a couple things right off the bat. Quickly, we had mentioned uh, the genetically engineered tyrant. I hear, I hear is his full name. Khan Noonien Singh. We had mentioned, you know, he was a character who first appeared in the 1967 Star Trek episode Space Seed. So there you go. You want to see the origin of Khan? Look up that episode. Also... After the lackluster, I guess, critical response to the first film, Star Trek, the motion picture, uh, series creator Gene Roddenberry was forced out of the sequel's production. 
Yeah. Which is crazy. I don't, I did not know that. And I didn't know that either until reading this. Executive producer Harv Bennett, uh, excuse me, Harv Bennett wrote the film's original outline. And then it was developed into a full script, which director, Mr. Meyer, completed the, that final script in 12 days without accepting a writing credit. Nicholas, is it Nicholas Meyer, correct? Yes. The director. Yeah. He actually completed the final script. He was the one that wrote the, fi- the script in 12 days. No, I, I didn't realize Meyer was more known for his writing than his directing. I was surprised he only has like nine directing credits. Two of them. Yeah, I was going to get. Credits. I was going to comment on that later. Yeah, which is strange because I think he does a wonderful job directing this film. Yeah. So there's a couple of things. What do you got? Um, I found this pretty fascinating. Was 65 percent of the film was shot on the same set. So the Bridge of the Reliant, the Enterprise, and then the Bridge simulator at the beginning for the Kobayashi Maru yeah. is all the same set. They just redressed it a little bit just to make it look different. Yeah. Yeah. They were very uh, efficient with the usage of what they had. The Which sets. is so funny because interchangeable know, you watch the parts. Movie. I mean, that's the thing when you make movies is, you know, you, you shoot all these one scenes and then you shoot all these scenes at the same place. That way you're not going back and forth and just because there's just so much back and forth between the Reliant and Enterprise. You just think it's two separate sets, but oh, you know, sure, it's completely the same set. Yeah, it's the magic of movie making, right? Yep. You, you just you put the, you put the camera on the other side of the room, you change the lighting, you move a couple things, and you're like, oh, yeah, it's a brand new it's uh, a bridge. Now. Yeah, so I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and you kind of mentioned this earlier because um, Ricardo Marabom was still doing Fantasy Island at the time, right? Um, so his scenes were filmed at different times than the rest of the cast. Hence why him and uh, William Shatner never met. I think Shatner was just starting with TJ Hooker too. So with all this, just getting all the schedules all together. There you go. Making. Yeah. Their scenes, I guess were filmed four months apart. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Usually you don't, usually it's not that big of a a gap when you bring in someone, you know, someone else. It's the last. Yeah. Not that much. Yeah. No, that's very rare to have that. And it's always interesting when you, you think, because you're watching it, you, the way the film's cut, it, it's as if the actors are talking to each other. So you just think they are. Assume, I mean, yeah. the, the characters are clearly talking to each other, but good. But that's the way it's edited. But they're not in the same room. So we know and somewhere in the back of our minds, they're not actually speaking to each other. They're not on the same set. They're not. But yeah, because they're not even doing like line readings to one another. Right. But they are so convincing but they have, they're not actually talking to the other actor. So I would have to imagine at some point, either, you know, the director has somebody throwing the lines to Shatner and vice versa to Montalban, but the actual actor isn't there. So that takes some acting prowess to pull yeah, that cause off. You, yeah. Cause you have no idea what the other person's doing. So you just got to improvise or. Yeah. And they're, com- they're so committed and so, I mean, you have a real sense of the history between these two characters and their animosity. Mm -hmm. So credit to both of them. Um, So we, of course, mentioned that Gene Roddenberry wasn't part of the production here, that he got pulled off of it, basically. But, you know, after the release of the first film, Star Trek, the motion picture, you know, Gene Roddenberry wrote his own sequel. And this is great. In his plot. 
the crew of the Enterprise travel back in time to set right a corrupted timeline after Klingons use the Guardian of Forever. I don't, I guess that's a ship, I'm not sure, or something, to prevent the assassination of John F. Kennedy. So Roddenberry's idea for the for the sequel was that the Enterprise goes back in time to stop the Klingons from using the Guardian of Forever to prevent the assassination of John F. Kennedy, which in all truth, to me, actually does sound like a classic Star Trek episode. The right episode. Right, from the series. Yeah, I couldn't see that as a movie. Granted, no. in Star Trek Four, they go back in time, but to prevent the ascent, yeah, I was just like, that's no way. That's not even like, oh, I'd love to see them do that. No. No, see, but that's the thing. That's That doesn't interest me. And no, like, not at all. You got back to Nicholas Meyer, who ended up directing and, as I mentioned before, ended up writing the script in 12 days. He, coming onto this project, had never seen an episode of Star Trek. That's nuts. <laughs> yeah. What else you got for fun facts and trivia? All right. So my, my last one, because we kind of talked about this when we did our... Um, Last Starfighter uh-huh. podcast, uh, just about the special effects scenes. Um, so the Genesis Project scene, where they see the simulation of what the Genesis Project is, one of the first documented computer. Right, I have that too. Computer, yeah. yeah, special effects shots in history from beginning to end. Yeah, it is one of the earliest ones, and uh, the company that did it uh, would later become uh, Pixar. There you go. Yeah, according to the research, it says uh, that that sequence was the direct brainchild of ex-Boeing engineer Lauren Carpenter, yes. who, after Boeing, went on to join George Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic. There you go. And I'll just say this lastly for fun facts and trivia. Commented on this earlier. Wiley debated that Ricardo Montalban's chest was actually a prosthetic piece that he wore during the film. But in the director's commentary on the Blu-ray, Nicholas Meyer, the director, is quoted as saying that this was, in fact, Montalban's actual chest and that he was a very muscular man who worked out. Uh, I guess during publicity for the film, Montalban explained that he was able to achieve the look seen in this film by doing push-ups. A lot of push-ups. I'm going to start doing a lot of push-ups now. Yeah. Get it. Chest. That's, that's what you should say. It's like, that's the look you're going for. You should yeah. tell people. Yeah, I just, I, hey, I'm going for, I'm just, I want to look like Khan. Be like, what? No, no. Like, you mean like the new, what? No, Ricardo Montalban's version of Khan. Wrath of Khan. That's what I'm, that's what I'm going for. I mean, because we're all used to seeing him in the white suit on Fantasy Island. Who knew? I mean, under there, rip dude. Since you just brought up Fantasy Island again, it, it's true. It's true. And is that is also in the research is that because he was shooting that at the same time. He really had difficulty getting out of that part and trying to get into the role of Khan, mm-hmm. making the switch over. And that he had to, he actually went back to watch that original 1967 episode, Space Seed, and watched it over and over again to get a real sense of Khan's character. So he could make the differentiation between Khan and because it is funny. Because thinking about that show, because I do kind of remember it growing up. All all I remember about the show is him and Tattoo. Yeah, I don't remember any of the stories. I, just I don't. Remember, I never watched the show. To be honest. No, I just remember. I kinda, remember the opening credits, and that's about it. Right. The, you know, the plane coming in, the people would come off. I couldn't tell you any of their stories, but I definitely remember Mr. Rourke and and Tattoo. That's it. 
I had to go back and watch it just to see if they're if they're any good. And they shot some of that opening sequence. I was just over at the Arboretum here in Arcadia. Oh yeah, and that's where they shot some. Yeah, yeah, the old cottage there and stuff. Yep, house is still there. Yep. All right, let's move on to box office. So this movie was released on June fourth, nineteen eighty two, on a budget of twelve million dollars, which is almost twenty five percent of what the original movie was. So it's, it's crazy. crazy. So they, yeah, they did some massive cuts on this one. Um, the film's domestic gross was seventy eight point nine million, um, sixteen point eight internationally for a worldwide gross of ninety five point eight. Um, it nice. debuted at number one with a gross of $14.3 million, which at the time was the highest opening weekend gross for a movie in the United States. 14.3. It's wild. If you did 14.3 right now, everyone would lose their jobs because <laughs> they would consider it a flop. But back then in 1982, that was amazing. Um, it would end up being the eighth highest grossing movie of 1982 of course number one that year um was some little movie about an alien called et awesome yeah someday someday we might do a podcast on it who knows we'll think about it Uh, it's all right yeah it's okay all right so uh for reviews um when growing up in the early 80s we loved catching sneak previews with gene siskel and roger ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming movies their review of the film was unanimous Two thumbs up. Gene found the movie relaxed, confident, and good-humored and enjoyed William Shatner's performance. Roger said this movie was much better than the first and had the two key elements that made him a fan of Star Trek to begin with, ideas and character development. They also praised Ricardo Montalban as the villain for being interesting and colorful. So they both really loved the film. Yeah, Gene was saying he was not really a Star Trek fan at all um, until this movie. And yeah. uh, he loved it. So that, that was kind of cool. So, yeah, like most people, if you weren't into it, this this would be the movie that would get you. If you're not in Star Trek, this is the one you watch first. This will get you in. Um, so this brings us to uh, any additional thoughts and wrapping it up. So, Jason, anything else we want to share with our audience about Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan? Um, you know, I only have a couple additional thoughts. One, I was just looking at who's still alive from the classic cast. Uh, we have William Shatner. Yes. He's like 90. 90, Yeah. He's 90 years old. Yeah. Still going. And Nichelle Nichols, who plays Uhura, is 88. George Takai, Sulu, he's 84. And Walter Koenig, uh, as Chekhov, is 84. So we still got four of the original crew uh, still with us. And the other thought I had additional, I just had written down just to, uh, okay, we, we covered it already, but I'm just going to briefly mention it again. The importance of a good villain, Ricardo Montalban as, as Khan, someone who should be superior in every way. How do you beat, how do you beat a villain like that? And uh, Kirk and his crew, all, they put it together. Uh, they figure it out. And uh, it seems to be, that uh, experience wins the day and Kirk manages to cheat death once again, although he obviously has to deal with Spock's death, but uh, just the importance of good villain. It makes for, you know, you've got to, you've got to have that balance and uh, it makes for a better story, more compelling story. And a good villain lends itself to some really good character development, I believe as well. So 
Do you have any other additional thoughts? For a Star Trek film, yeah, this is definitely one of my favorites. If you have not seen it and you're not even into Star Trek, I would recommend just watching this one just because it does have great character development, great villain, some great battles. Don't let the the Star Trek moniker fool you if you're if it's just not your thing. I just I just think it's an overall good movie. I just love that they quote great literature from the past. Um, Absolutely, Tale of Two Cities. Yeah, there's some Moby Dick in there. Moby Dick, yeah. So I just like the movie, and it's kind of funny because you know, growing up, like I said, I wasn't in a Star Trek at first. And then I really got in the next generation and there's the whole, you know, who's, who do you like better? Kirk or Picard? I just like it all. I just like it all. I just, the older I get, the more I really get into the the whole Star Trek universe. I think they've just done a, a really good job with it. I mean, they've taken some chances, some of the other shows and stuff. I still, I enjoy the movies, even the new ones. I don't, oh, absolutely. I, I don't know how that offends true Trek fans, but uh I don't know. I've, I've just been enjoying the ride and uh, this is really the movie that drew me in and made me like, okay, you know, there's, there's more, there's more out there than, than star Wars. So. Right. I, I completely agree. And I, I will just add on to that. Like, I think this is a truly well-crafted film on every level, all elements, direction, writing, editing, cinematography, lighting, and on and on. Uh, it's wonderfully overacted. <laughs> yes. I'm being a little tongue in cheek there, but it adds to the dramatic element of it. Yeah. It, gosh, it's such a tight movie. This is, this clocks in at just under two hours too, which shows you and all, all young filmmakers out there that it can be done. You can make a good movie in under two hours that yes. has a full story and has a solid three act structure. Uh, it's really well paced smartly written it still has a sense of humor it's such a well blended and just well balanced uh between the the action and may, you know what is it is it missing a love story i i you could say that there's still a little bit of a a romantic touch between kirk and his ex uh carol uh there is a relationship story in here between father and son like I'd mentioned right from the top, there are so many running themes throughout this, this film and uh, poignant moments, especially in particular when Kirk is talking about how he hasn't really faced death, how he's cheated it, how he's tricked his way out of death. And now he's had to face it because of, of the loss of Spock. And then he connects with his son, David Marcus. Mm-hmm. So there's just some, yeah, it just, yeah, uh, so I yeah heavily heavily recommend watching this movie for a lot of. A There's lot of another thing reasons. too, yeah, because I was thinking about this too. Like you know, we said the movie does clock in a little under two hours, and watching it again this time, like you think of all the action, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of action. There's really only the two space battles, and the one yeah takes a little bit up of the third act, and the first one goes, but it's that's not a lot. It's a lot of character development moving the plot along developing I told you, you're ab- no, you absolutely right i was i was kind of surprised by it i was like man there's less action in this than i thought you don't it's not ne- it's not necessary to tell a good story no it's not it's just not 
and not when the writing is engaging and you're invested in the relationships and you see the relation how it's moving forward because it's smartly done like we talked about foreshadowing for instance there's some great sequences in the beginning that we open with an action sequence which is nice with the kobayashi maru scenario mm-hmm. which is nice but then we get into some kind of intellectual thoughtful scenes which i really appreciate because it's actually james t kirk's birthday and it's funny that this is only the second film in the film franchise and yet we're already dealing with kirk's aging Mm -hmm. as if he's aging out he feels he's too old to be the galloping across the galaxy right we have mccoy coming to him and giving him reading glasses yes you know and as well as some romulan ale which is always nice (laughs) i always love that running uh, gag throughout, yep. but Spock had given him the book Tale of Two Cities, and there's just there's messages in here and how this is the another theme, obviously Kirk dealing with getting old. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for him, and what does it mean regarding his own purpose and fulfillment in life? Which leads to another poignant scene between him and Spock later on. These just I'm saying this because there are these. Uh, quieter scenes that are dialogue heavy, they're relationship based, they are not action oriented, but you are, I'm invested, I, I list, I'm engaged, I'm listening to the, because I'm like, oh, there's some messages here. They're dealing with real human issues. Yes. That will then play into the action. It's all interconnected and there's a payoff with all of it at the end there's a nice resolution. And uh, so, yeah, there's, like you said, not a whole lot of action, but it feels like it's still moving. It's always moving. I concur with that. Yeah. So uh, some great, great points. Uh, I had a couple of questions for you, man. All right. Question time. One, if you were a member of the crew, who would you be? Ooh. Here's, it's kind of, it's two questions in one. If you were a member of the USS Enterprise crew, the classic crew, who would you want to be and who do you think you are? Who do you, which crew member do you think you're closest to? Oh, okay. Which crew member do I feel like I'm closest to? Um, I think it would be Sulu. Wow. Interesting choice. Okay. Yeah. I think I'd just be a part of the team, fly the ship. Kind of just keep my role minor. I mean, I mean, I like Scotty, but that that's just stressful. I mean, every episode right? <laughs> ships in deep crap, and I got to figure it out before we all. No, I can't do that. Uh, my original thought was like, oh, I'd like to be in engineering, but I'm like, no, man. Every episode, then I got I got to somehow fix the ship before we all. Do. That's just too stressful for me. I can't do it. I love it. So I, li- I like Sula. I just want to fly the ship, just cruise, just cruise in space. That's the way I want to go. I love it. Yeah. You know, when I give it a bit more thought, I think I definitely would want to be Kirk, but I think I'm closer to Spock uh, in a way. I think that I'd like to take a, a kind of a more, always that measured approach, logical approach, measured approach in trying to find the best solutions to resolve any kind of altercation problems puzzles whatever it may be but seeking a way 
to continue to use the best qualities of all people in order to come together and to move forward with the the mission and the you know the whatever it may be at at the time. And you are because I emotionless. You know, was that? Yeah, and you are pretty emotionless. So yeah, I, very. <laughs> Yeah, I you know, uh so I think I I probably think I'm closer to Spock with you know maybe the the somewhere deep down inside the capability to feel especially I think there's an interesting iteration of him in the newer films, the JJ Abrams iteration, where you have Zachary Quinto, who's wonderful as Spock. Oh yeah. Uh and the thing is like he has the human aspect of so when he is emotional, it can almost it rears its ugly head as if he doesn't know what to do with it when he's feeling such emotion and can explode. And I think that is true to my character personally, just being a little revelatory here. Uh, so yeah, I identify with Spock. Anyway, uh, here's my other question, man. Speaking yes. of Spock, best death scene in a movie, most gut-wrenching, most heroic death, saddest death, whatever it may be. Do you have nominees or for best death sequence in a oh, movie. Oh god, you start asking that and of course I'm like my mind's going blank. Well, I'll throw out some for you to make it cuz I just put you in the spotlight here. How uh, here's one of my I just think it's still the saddest and most impactful first uh probably 5 minutes of any movie ever is the animated Pixar film Up. Oh, still gets me. One. Yeah, that was, a, that was an awesome one. You watch the couple grow old and then she passes away and you're crying in the movie. Mm-hmm. You were not even five minutes into the movie. Yes. Michael Giacchino's score during, and that music is just, it's a killer every time. We brought this up earlier in a podcast. Uh, it was, I believe, the Dragon Slayer because we we're talking about dragons. One of my favorite deaths is Michael, or Michael, Matthew McConaughey in Reign of Fire. Yes, I love that. Death. That is a good one too. I never saw Terms of Endearment, but I've heard that that's one of the ultimate tearjerkers. Yeah, yeah, that one got me. How about I'm going? I'm going back a bit. How about Old Yeller? Oh yeah, uh, that's a good one. And then of course we've got Alien, Best Death, John Hurt as Kane. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a cool one. I'll just go through these here for the sake of time. Uh, Blade Runner, Rutger Hauer, Time to Die. Love that. Yes. Uh, Bambi is a classic. Bonnie and Clyde, oof, that's brutal. They go out uh, hard, hardcore. One I know you'll be partial to, Beth Dessin, Jaws. Yes. So there's a few for you. Psycho. <laughs> I, yeah. Some of this, I cheated, of course. I Googled this to make it easier just to come up with a good list. The movie but, that's that's popping into my head that yeah, yeah, had two pretty good uh, Saving Private Ryan. Oh sure, Adam when Good Adam call. Goldberg was fighting the the oh that's that, a brutal. One. Oh, I remember I was wanting to scream at the at the screen on that one. Yeah, and then just because uh, I'm a big Tom Hanks fan, watching Tom Hanks pass away that was rough too. Oh yeah, so of course those, those two. Those those are for, but yeah, I know there's so many others that um, I'm missing. There's one that comes up on the list if you you Google it. And I should have known this off the top of my head because this was our very first inaugural podcast. Robocop. Oh, yeah. Has some amazing deaths in it, which is, I mean, not to make light of it, but I'm just right. saying we know Murphy 
oh, one of the most brutal deaths. But then I know one of your personal favorites, Emil, later on. Yeah. The toxic, the toxic Avenger, <laughs> as I call him. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, please tweet us, email us, let us know what your favorites uh, or... I know that's kind of a morbid subject, but, you know, uh, there are some incredible death sequences in films that are extremely moving or impactful for one reason or another. So I was just uh, curious as to what uh, what your thoughts were on that. So something to ponder. But, yeah, that's all I've got for deep questions again. And and, uh, I'll just, you know, go back to to my wrap up slash closing. But uh, just like Bill Bant said, if you are wary of getting into the star trek universe or you think it's just not for you i recommend star trek to the wrath of khan an example of uh excellent filmmaking and great storytelling take our word for it awesome all right so i think that wraps it up for this week's episode thank you so much for listening our next film will be the john hughes 1985 classic the breakfast club Starring Molly Ringwald, Judd Nelson, Emilio Estevez, Anthony Michael Hall, and Ali Sheedy. As always, please subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. You can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook at All80smoviespodcast or tweet us at podcastall80s. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. Bill, I have been in. Always shall be your friend. Live long and prosper, everyone. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. No, stay out of my ear hole. <laughs>